Can't imagine there's a story that appears as frequently on the walls of church nurseries as this one, and it's not hard to see why. You know, there's sort of a twofold criteria for nursery murals cute and colorful. As far as cute goes, we're told two of every kind of animal boarded the ark. So, all right, well, you can pick your favorites, put them on the deck of the ark there, up there with Noah. Uh, you get this sort of floating pet zoo, petting zoo. That's nice. That's cute. And as far as color, come on, got a rainbow. So you get the full spectrum of colors, every paint in the box. But it's hardly, a mural like that hardly represents the full story. I mean, it's sort of like if you were in a library and they had a painting, a mural on the wall of the Spanish Inquisition. You're like, well, you know, it's a story about people who had questions and wanted some answers. A library is a place where people have questions and come looking for answers. You're like, well, okay. But it's also about killing people that didn't have the right answers, you know? This also is, isn't just a cute and colorful story. It's a dark story, um, both literally and figuratively. Because what's happening here is you have these bridge creatures, beings made of earth and divine breath, given responsibility for caring for the earth. They have run amok. They have managed to fill the earth with their offspring as commanded, but their creator takes delight in the good. The creator causes life to flourish. But as we're told in here, the people whose inclinations of the heart is always toward evil. And violence, not life, flourishes. And as we read last week, I mean, this pains God. It breaks God's heart. God decides it can't continue like this. You know, several, several weeks back, we talked about that impulse we have for a do-over. Here, God does not just sort of wad up the creation and start fresh, but it is pretty close to a do-over. I mean, here's, this will come in chapter 7, for, talking about what the rain does. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth as the waters increased they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all humankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. You know, and you're not in this, what, 39th, 40th day of rain. Moses looking out. You know, what does he see? Above him, dark storm clouds in every direction, all the way to the horizon. And beneath them, it's water, 
dark, deep, in every direction, all the way to the horizon. You know, if you were to make this scene your nursery school mural, uh, it would look a good deal like another scene from Genesis. It would look a lot like the earth as described in Genesis 1, chapter 2. The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. In other words, God has sort of taken the earth back to its primordial state. Uh, The only difference between a depiction of of that scene and this scene is in the middle middle of all that darkness and and, uh, formless void. So you got a little ark floating on the water. You got... It's floating atop this undulating, watery darkness beneath a billowy darkness above. You know, it's interesting that often in our depictions of Noah's Ark, the water that Noah's floating on is sort of a clear blue. Well, let's hope it wasn't. You'd want water dark, dark enough to hide what's below the surface. Because that's the other difference between this scene and Genesis 1. It is not just the story of a new beginning. It is the story of an ending. The end of what was. I mean, there is a holocaust beneath the waves. Evidence of near mass extinction of every living thing is beneath those waves. This is a troubling story. So how do we make sense of the body count in this story? I suppose most people go one of two ways. One is to emphasize just how bad those people were, and there's certainly evidence in the text to suggest these people were bad. Uh, It reminds me, you know, you may have heard that story. I, I try to find the or, where it comes from. No one knows the origin of it, but it's often told as a uh, Cherokee grandfather talking to his grandson about how within him are two wolves uh, in a battle to the death. One wolf, the uh, wolf of darkness, one a wolf of light. And the grandson says, well, grandfather, who's, who, which will win the battle? And the grandfather responds, the one I feed. Great story. It's a great line. Well, one way of making sense of the carnage is to say these people always, you know, toss the dark wolf, the sirloin. It is a world out of control. And they are, so in a sense, it's an emphasis, they are very different from us. Now, I don't find that answer particularly comforting. I mean, first of all, if you think about it, uh, that world sounds like a pretty toxic environment, what chance would any kid have when all the adults in your life are these sort of comic book villains? Uh, People who do uh, evil things often are people who've had evil things done to them. They are both villains and victims. So it still feels, I mean, actually, it reminds me, there's that book uh, that was, came out, I think, early 80s, uh, when bad things happen to good people. There's sort of a, 
have sort of a problem just with the title. Uh, the book was written by a rabbi after, in response to his son being diagnosed with this horrible, uh, rare genetic disorder that, that cut his son's life short. And that is, I mean, of course, that is tragic. But are we, to, it's always tragic, regardless of who that happens to. Is there ever a case when you say, well, that bad thing, that happened to a bad person, so they deserve it? Is, it, is there ever a time, I mean, that sort of setting apart bad things, there are bad people that deserve bad things, is a deeply problematic way to think about it. So that leaves us with the alternative. Well, it's not that these people were so different from us. Uh, they, in fact, were in some ways like us. They may have been bad, but they are not all together different from us. Uh, this is sort of the, the, the take emphasized by the Calvinists in that they're saying, no, look, we all deserve that sort of judgment, the judgment that these they received, we deserve as well. Um, we all fall short of God's standards. And, the, and, and salvation is always uh, a gift of God, of God. It's always an act of grace. It is always, it's never deserved. It's always a gift. Uh, it's a good thing that happens even to bad people. Now, that too, uh, I think that's, that's the better position to take, but it's still kind of troubling. I wish I could say, hey, I've got a, a, a third alternative. No, it's, they're like us. So that it's, when we see that body count, we're seeing people like us. Now, I would say, in a lot of ways, I am Calvinist, although most of the time when I hear People identify as Calvinist. I'm always very nervous about what they're going to say. So I, in a sense, I'm more Calvinist in my theology than I am in my attitude because a lot of times Calvinists are way too comfortable with God's <laughs> judgment on people. Um, John Piper, he's probably the most prominent Calvinist. He's had a huge influence on the American church, whether you've heard of him or not. Uh, he's probably had... Uh, you've, no, probably no people have certainly been influenced by him. Uh, you know, he, one of the things I appreciate about him is his emphasis that, that everything is ultimately uh, for God's glory. Uh, but he emphasizes even judgment is for God's glory, this sort of judgment. Uh, and he even tells a story uh, about how when his kids were young, he used to uh, go into their bedrooms while they were sleeping and pray for them. And he had this realization. Boy, you know, it may not be that my children are among those that God has elected to save. Maybe the fact they are uh, to be recipients of God's eternal judgment. And he had the thought and then he said, well, I had to come to the conclusion that that too would be for God's glory. Uh, I have a hard time with that. And 
I don't know that, I, I, mean, I think, I'm not the only one that has a hard time with that. I think God has a hard time with that. Because what we see in this text is not a God who is primarily offended and is, you know, gleefully taking it, I mean, clearly not gleefully taking it out on humanity. He is a God who is heartbroken, who, in a sense, hates what God is doing. Um, it's, this, isn't about, this isn't about God's glory, it's about God's grief. Um, so I think God, we're not to be content with sort of saying, well, God just judges. We all deserve the judgment. Because there is, you know, when, when we keep reading this story, uh, as soon as those waters recede, God is, just, you can see God is just eager to begin again. The death, no more dying, let's, let's let the living begin. You know, at, you know, get those animals out of the ark, get them to spread over the earth and start living, start uh, multiplying. Uh, and he says, and God says, never again. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of their heart, the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And then what God does is he puts a sign in the clouds of this promise as a reminder of this promise. That is, of course, the rainbow. Now, I believe that our Bible translates the word there as translates it, puts rainbow in there. But the word is just bow. I have put my bow in the clouds. And that is important because it's, this is a symbol. It's not God just saying, hey, here's a festive thing to celebrate this day. No, it's a bow in the clouds. I mean, the word used there is used, I don't know, another 60, 70 times in the Old Testament. Every other time, it refers to the weapon of a bow, like a bow and arrow. And so what God is saying is, look, I'm putting away my weapon. And I'm not going to use it again. I, 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 even, you know, if I find myself angered, if I find myself heartbroken and I want to, and, and, and I just want to, destroy everything again, I'll remember this covenant, this promise I've made. I'll see my bow hanging there and remind me, never again. You know, another interpretation on this, of this uh, is that this is, and this is a little catchphrase, you can all, I'm sure you all find it, opportunity to use that this is a self-maledactory oath. Now, you may not be familiar with the phrase, but you're familiar with the idea. Uh, as a kid, when you made a promise, what would you say? Uh, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Remember, did you say that? Well, that is a self-maledactory oath. In other words, if I don't keep my promise, I'm going to stick needles in my eyes and die, right? Well, this, they, some argue, is another self-maledactory oath. Because, look, it's... The bow is bowed. In other words, when is, there is an arrow, and where is it going to point? It's upward. It, God is saying, look, if I break my promise, may I die. On my life. Never again. This is, I will keep my promise to you and to the creation. 
So what happens in the story is it is, it's sort of a retelling, of, again, of the creation story. Uh, the waters separate from the dry land. The, Noah releases the dove from the ark, which returns with the olive branch in its mouth. So show it, you know, uh, there is vegetation again. And then the animals are released to fulfill the earth. But God is under no illusions about humanity. God does not, is not putting his bow in the cloud saying, well, that fixed it. From now on, things are going to be good. God knows hearts are still going to be inclined to feed the dark wolf. God knows that, that the problems are going to continue. So God, if God is going to fix it, God is going to have to try do it by other means. And that, of course, is what we celebrate on this Christmas season. You know, it's interesting that of the four Gospels, only two really tell the story, the Christmas story, uh, Matthew and Luke. John has sort of this poem about the word becoming flesh. Mark skips it all together. Uh, you know, he's right there in the beginning of the Gospel. You got John the Baptist all uh, shouting in the wilderness. And, but one of the things that all four Gospels do include, and they get to it real quick, um, is Jesus' baptism. Um, all four are, are, you know, in those, that they get their real, Luke is the only one that gives us a story of, of who Jesus was between sort of his uh, being a toddler and, and becoming an adult. Other than that, they all want to get, because it's like the baptism is going to really indicate just what's happening here. Right? It's not just that Jesus is one of us. Jesus is going to share our fate. How does, now, how does baptism tell us this? Well, because baptism, like that bow in the clouds, the water of baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol of cleansing, right? It's a bath. Baptism is a bath. But it is also a symbol of a of our death, of, of burial. You know, Paul says, uh, we have been buried with him in baptism. So given those, the, the, what baptism symbolizes, you can understand why John the Baptist, when Jesus shows up on the, the banks of the Jordan, he's like, uh, I should be baptizing you. You don't need the cleansing. You have nothing, you've done nothing to deserve the judgment of death. Uh, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, I, no, we're going to do this because I need to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus isn't just like us. He is in that he's a human being, but he's sharing our fate. Uh, baptism, Jesus' baptism demonstrates just the depth to which God goes in the identification with humanity. Jesus, uh, he is not only showing us the meaning of his birth, but of his death, right? Jesus is submerged beneath the waters and he, Jesus becomes a part of the body count. He is part, he goes under the waves. They include him because he dies. We take our bow and we, and we aim it at him and kill him, right? Render our judgment on him. 
But of course, he identifies that deeply with us. He takes on our fate because he will conquer death. So we were baptized into Christ, with Christ into his death so that we might rise with him to new life. So when we place those waters on ourselves, that's what we're remembering. The God who puts away the bow comes with us, becomes part of the body count so that we might be, might rise to new life. God binds himself to us so that we might bind ourselves to God. You know, so part of what we do as people shaped by that, this story so we don't, have, we don't have some romanticized view about the world, thinking, oh, everybody's all good. And no, we recognize there's evil. People are feeding the dark wolf. We feed the dark wolf. But what we do, we make sure we put away the bow. We don't turn it on other people. We don't turn it on ourselves. We forgive, we accept forgiveness extend this grace that we have received. And it is in doing that, that we see God's glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.